You are listening to The Cumberland Road, and I'm your host, TJ Melanoski. The following is a faith conversation with Reverend Dr. Stan Wood, retired vice president of academic affairs, academic dean, and director of the Doctor of Ministry at Memphis Theological Seminary. Dr. Wood also served as the General Secretary, the Stated Clerk of the Cumberland Presbyterian Church in America for 18 years. And he continues to serve as the Minister of Mount Tabor Cumberland Presbyterian Church in America in Jackson, Tennessee since 2011. Dr. Wood is my friend. We talk and sometimes we travel together and I seek his counsel and wisdom. He has been instrumental in my personal life and in my ministry at both the Cumberland Presbyterian Church and in the Cumberland Presbyterian Church in America by providing encouragement and insight. Because of this, I have never been able to call him Stan. For me, and out of respect, he is Dr. Wood. In our conversation, we talk about the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. For clarity, there are two denominations who bear this name. We share a confession of faith, a constitution, ministries, and history, yet remain distinct. My hope is that these commonalities and conversations like these continue to build bridges where the two become one. So when we speak of the church, our discussion sometimes blends the two denominations together. And now, here is the faith journey of Reverend Dr. Stan Wood, or as he mentions in our conversation, the luckiest man on the face of the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. All right, Dr. Wood, thank you for being on the podcast. I thought, uh, well, you shared with me off mic. Uh, Let's begin our conversation with your grandson, Lance. Thank you, uh, TJ. Um, I'm honored that you've invited me to uh, have this conversation with you, and I've been looking forward to it as well, so thank you. Thank you for your friendship. Yes, uh, my wife Patricia and I have one grandson. Lance uh, turned 12 this past uh, May, so he's still a youngster, still in grammar school. Um, He is, um, at this point in our lives, uh, one of the very special people on earth, and we uh, love him to the maximum. Lance um, and I are in conversation with each other by telephone at least once every two weeks. Uh, We're able to uh, look at each other and talk with each other. He catches me up on his life, and uh, (laughs) that's always intriguing to me. 
He loves to play the drums. He's um, beginning to learn how to swim. Mm. Most recently, um, a few weeks ago, he told me that he um, um, had uh, spent uh, that day learning how to um, go under the water and hold his breath. And he tells me how afraid he was, but that the uh, instructor was uh, very, very helpful to him. Lance and um, my son Kevin and his wife Lisa uh, come down from Antioch, Tennessee to Memphis to visit us uh, two or three times a year. And since we are entering uh, holiday season as we talk, uh, I'm aware that I will be seeing Lance face to face um, in the next uh, f few days, and I'm looking forward to that. One experience I shall never forget is um, when Kevin and I took Lance to see the Memphis Grizzlies for the first time. Um, Lance um, is a Grizzlies fan. He has watched the Grizzlies on TV in the Nashville area um, for many years now, and so has become a Grizzly fan. Uh, Jaw is his favorite player, as you might expect. <laughs> um, we took him to uh, see the Grizzlies play um, th this particular night when they were visiting with us. We uh, parked the car in the garage, walked down uh, Bill Street, took a right-hand turn onto the plaza of the FedEx Forum, and Lance's eyes grew larger and larger and larger. And the words I remember him asking are, is this the FedEx Forum? So we paused for a moment and let him uh, kind of take it in and uh, took a couple of pictures while we were there with him so he could remember this moment. And then we went, went in and um, uh, saw the game. The Grizzlies lost that night. I remember Jaw was uh, injured early in the game and could not play much of the game, and that was a disappointment. But um, it wasn't that they lost that was the main factor that day. It was that Lance had his first opportunity to be amazed at the sight of the FedEx Forum. Mm. And uh, that's a moment I shall never forget. And you were there to share it with him. Yes. Um, I stood beside him while Kevin uh, took our photo. So I will always be able to tell Lance I was there <laughs> that day, that moment when we together were amazed at uh, this wonderful building that we had uh, seen on TV all this time mm. and for you to see it for the first time. Dr. Wood, how is that a God moment, a faith moment, a faith experience for you? Well, I always feel that um, um, there are times when um, we get insight um, 
we, we uh, are amazed at the wonder of the world, amazed at what God has created and what uh, humans have created under the inspiration of God. So to see um, my grandson um, look with wonder in his eyes um, made me realize that in many places, new revelations may come to us. And while this may be secular in the eyes of some, it was a new revelation for Lance. It was the breaking of a barrier of, of not knowing that took place that moment. And it will make it easier, I think, for Lance hmm. as he grows older, as God discloses God's self to him in other ways or in ways that he can perceive that uh, maybe he won't be as shocked, but hopefully he will uh, recognize that uh, uh, God works uh, through a, a, a variety of means mm. to get our attention. Mm. As you know, the two children that I have, their ages are spread out a bit. And with the second child, there's something about, especially the older I get, to be able to look through the world through another pair of eyes and how revealing that is, whether it's a novelty or something deep or most likely it's been something that I've taken for granted, you know, the the geese flying over the house. And if you're quiet enough, you can hear the flapping of their wings, breaking the air. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, things like that, that I've heard it enough, seen it enough, that I don't pay that much attention. But to have someone else draw it to my attention yes. once again, for me, it's really, really humbling. And there's, there's something to be said, something very religious, I think, to step out of our own shoes, our own perspective into another's. And children are able to help us adults <laughs> do that uh, in a wonderful way, I think. Yeah. Uh, in this case with uh, Lance, um, it's clear to me that um, I was as excited <laughs> as he was mm-hmm. and could see that building in a different light because, mm-hmm. as you say, I've passed by it many times. I've walked into the building many times, but was never amazed at it. Mm-hmm. But Lance helped me to to do that. And I would think in the, in the larger uh, aspect of life, children are able to bring truth to us in ways <laughs> that we uh, could never imagine. We think we are the dispensers of truth. Often it's the children who help us to uh, learn of God in ways that we never had. Yeah, to look at the world with awe and wonder and afresh, it, it makes, for me anyway, it makes uh, me slow down and breathe. Not a shallow breath, but a deeper breath. And even if it's momentarily, it causes me to step out of the race of accomplishments, chores, uh, responsibilities, expectations, 
and go, it really is an accomplishment. That is really significant. Seeing the, I don't know why I keep uh, thinking of outdoors, but seeing the uh, trails from airplanes cross over and make X's in the sky or crosses in the sky. Uh, most of the time I'm looking forward to beeline to the next thing, but to pause and to look up. And it's usually with the recognition of somebody who's younger than me. Says, Take a look at that. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, God is constantly at work in our world mm-hmm. in ways that often we overlook. And to have someone to help us to, as you put it, pause and uh, see what God is doing in our world is a, a wonderful gift. Mm-hmm. And so in that way, I guess our children and grandchildren are pastors to us in their own ways, Mm -hmm. uh, certainly are helping us to um, discover and rediscover God um, in ways that we thought we had already uh, uh, crossed or passed. (laughs) So anyway, I'm grateful that I have a 12-year-old who is my teacher, (laughs) and I I learned from him. (laughs) Well, uh, let's go back in time to some early moments in your life, Dr. Wood. Um, Can you recall an early encounter with God? An early experience? I will uh, describe later um, how I was nurtured um, uh, from um, from my birth until this moment by the Cumberland Presbyterian Church and as many um, uh, people that I've encountered over the years. But there's a parachurch group that I encountered when I was 12 years old where I was led to make a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ even though I had been baptized as an infant in the Cumberland Presbyterian Church, I had not uh, publicly affirmed that faith. So at the age of 11 or 12, um, um, many of us in that region of East Tennessee where I grew up uh, were introduced to a group called Sedine Bible Camp where we learned, where we had persons from that group to come to our grammar school, grades one through six, uh, grades, no, grades one through eight grammar school in Charleston, Tennessee. Persons would come to that school and would come to schools in all of, most of East Tennessee from, far as I know, from the Alcoa, Knoxville area down to Chattanooga, Mm -hmm. that whole area, that whole region, they would invite us to memorize um, Bible verses, the reward of which at the end of the nine-month period would be a free week of camp. So Uh at 12 years of age, uh, I was one of those who was awarded a um, free week of camp. And you wanted to go to camp. I wanted to go. Yes, I was ready. Um, 
scared to death, of course, because uh, uh, I only knew people whom I knew, <laughs> and that was the limited group of people in Charleston. Mm -hmm. uh, but I did go I, and um, met you, a lot of folk. And Do you have a competitive nature about you? Was there that part of you? It might have been. Uh, yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't. It wasn't clear to me mm. that I was at that point. I think it's clearer to me now <laughs> that, that I am. But at that time, I'm not sure I had that much insight. Mm -hmm. um, but when I went to Sedine, um, I um, made a public profession of faith that week, and uh, came back home and. Uh, told my parents what had happened and that I was ready to make a public profession of faith at, in the local church mm -hmm. and uh, did, did so. So that that's significant to me. Um, I would say that some of my best friends during my teenage years um, had a similar experience at Sedine, though we were not in the same city, community, but we were in the same region. And um, ended up that several of us um, formed a group in which we um, decided that we would hold each other accountable mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in how we lived, in sins we had committed and not confessed. <laughs> um, am I reading my Bible regularly? Am I praying regularly? What sin did you commit last week that you haven't confessed? Sort of the John Wesley uh, accountability group idea. But during those teenage years, to me, that was a very significant point in my spiritual development, that I had someone who would hold me accountable to what I professed to say I believe and who I, say, who I said I was who I say that I am. Uh, so that, that was helpful. So that, I won't say much more about that uh, outside the, the, the uh, denominational setting, but that did occur, and it was a major significant part of my spiritual development mm -hmm. that uh, I still appreciate. I will say that um, over the years, as you might expect, I have questioned a lot of that upbringing, a lot of the decisions I made in those years, and that my faith has matured, I think, significantly. Uh, but that early grounding mm. to me was significant, and a part of who I am today is because of that from years 12 to about 18, uh, having that experience, especially with my accountability, uh, accountability partners, um, uh, was very important to me in my life. Do you have that now? Do you have a set of friends, colleagues, that y you share in that accountability? Not like then. There are two people uh, whose names I won't call. I don't. I don't mind calling their names. But both live in Huntsville, Alabama, mm. 
And if they hear this, they will know who they are. And that's, <laughs> that's all that's important. With whom I have a similar experience of being accountable. Mm. Um, it's not that the three of us are in conversation about that, but two of us may be, mm. and at another time, uh, the other person and I mm. may, may do that, in which we um, ask each other about how we're doing in our faith journey, mm. how we're doing uh, in our work as pastors, mm. how we're doing um, in terms of the family, um, and how we're doing in terms of health, you know, all, all of the important issues of life. Mm. And we'll, on occasions, um, uh, say, well, I heard through the grapevine that uh, <laughs> a certain thing has occurred, uh, and I just know you well enough that I can directly ask you about that. You know, yeah. we are uh, here to help each other grow on, mm. in this journey, and so I will directly ask you the question. Mm-hmm. And... Um, because we are persons who love each other, who care for each other, who are not judgmental of each other, mm-hmm. um, and who, if if he or does not admit to what I heard, will that will not hurt our relationship whatsoever. As a matter of fact, he can correct. <laughs> You know, the, the mistake that uh, I'm trying to bring to his attention. <laughs> so, yes, um, there is a kind of accountability partnership mm. I have with a couple of people, even to this day. Yeah. And accountability isn't just what I've done wrong, what I've said or left unsaid, done or left undone. It it truly is sharing... It's hard to come by, you know, it's, it's friends, but on another level. Well, John, uh, John Wesley, you know, his focus was on the sins, uh-huh. <laughs> grow into <laughs> Christian maturity. And I think when I started out, when we started out in mm-hmm. my teenage years, that mm-hmm. really was our focus. But mm-hmm. as you say, um, uh, you know, you, as you grow in, in uh, spirituality and, uh, greater theological depth, you know, you put aside things that no longer work for you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you uh, are reintroduced to similar concepts, but you uh, deal with them in a different way. So it is more friendship now mm-hmm. than it is accountability. There's something to be said to have a friend, have an individual, individuals, plural, where you can just be Stan, where you can just be TJ. But with that can come accountability. When you have that friend call you out. Yes. Hey, this is not like you. But just to be able to communicate, talk, chat um, about a recent doctor's appointment or accomplishments of a grandchild or a child, um, a book you read, I mean... It is so nice to be able to have that where you can just be the person that you are and they overlook your quirks. Well, this is, again, his friendship. When I spoke with uh, Willie last Sunday, uh, he told me that uh, his wife, um, and I called his name, didn't I? 
his wife um, has been having serious issues in walking, and they were going to see her doctor that Monday, the next day, mm. with the hope that uh, there could be some uh, solution found. So I said, well, Willie, why don't we, um, we pray about that uh, right now, and then I'll call you back tomorrow, and uh, we'll talk further. So we had prayer over the phone. He and his wife went to see the doctor. The doctor gave her um, what he believes is a possible remedy to the problem she's having. It's going to require two outpatient surgeries, hmm. uh, lumbar uh, issues in her back. And uh, he thinks if she, when she goes through those two surgeries, and they won't be invasive either, um, hmm with the new types of surgeries that are possible now, that she'll be as good as new. So I called him back Monday, and um, you know he couldn't stop laughing or talking about the good news that the doctor had given, had given her. She's scheduled for surgery, um, what is today? She's scheduled for surgery, I think it's Friday of this week, the first uh, surgery, and uh, then there will be a second one scheduled later. So I can hardly wait to uh, catch up with them. On uh, So um, a friendship that goes back to 1988 to this moment is, is more how are we doing than it is what have you done wrong. Mm. And it's that kind of... Uh, uh, friendship that we have today, yes. So, Dr. Wood, we haven't ever talked about this before, but when you were growing up, when you were a kid, what did you imagine, what did you want to be? Well, I don't remember going back that far. Uh, it's been a while, you know. <laughs> um, I do remember... Older adults saying to me when I was as young as uh, eight or nine, uh, in their words, boy, you're going to be a preacher. <laughs> um, I had, you know, I had no idea about ministry, obviously, at that point. Mm-hmm. Um so after the age of 12, when I made a public profession of faith, I began to think more and more about what, how, how I could live out my faith. That was a key thing. Mm. How can I be a faithful Christian in the world? Mm. Uh, one of the options would be ministry, but there were other options. Um, believe it or not, at one point, I thought that I could be a fireman. All right, all right. Uh, I was about 14 at the time. Uh, I'm not a bulky guy now. I'm fat now, but I'm not a bulky guy, not muscular, and wasn't at that time, obviously. So how could I, as lean as I was in those days, ever have been a fireman? But that did enter my mind. Um, And obviously, you think about being a doctor. You think about being a lawyer. You think about... uh, being a policeman, you know, the, the, the typical things. All service, by the way. All service for others. 
Yeah. 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 Well, I would I would hope that whatever vocation we take, that ultimately we're doing it to serve others. We're mm-hmm. serving God by serving mm-hmm. others in whatever vocation. Even lawyers can do that, right? <laughs> <laughs> Very true. <laughs> Yeah. Well, uh, let's talk about the uh, calling to ministry. I um, was uh, influenced uh, by uh, Reverend L.B. Tinsley and his wife, Annie Tinsley, mm. who were not my pastor and wife team, but served a Cumberland Presbyterian church in um, Cleveland, Tennessee, 12 miles from where I lived. He was sort of a mentor for me in a lot of ways. And he and others thought that, um, um, you know, by the time I was 16, I was ministerial material. So he started talking with me about going to Bethel College at the time, um, and um, by the time I graduated from high school, uh, I decided that I would go to Bethel, even though I had not affirmed that I had a call to ministry, um, but I would go there as a way of kind of testing the waters to see if uh, something at Bethel could help me clarify whether or not I felt uh, an internal call to ministry. Um, so I did. And um, uh, I was at Bethel in my second year, still having not declared that I was a candidate for the ministry, when my advisor told me that, uh, you know, you are on scholarship here as a ministerial student. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the the college needs to have some clarity as to whether or not you're going to enter the ministry or not. So we will know whether to continue to administer these funds. So the next six months, I uh, uh, talked to some folk, including uh, Reverend Tinsley, and decided I would uh, uh, acknowledge a call to ministry and uh, and did that. Um, and um, was it clear at that time? I mean, because that, you know, owing money to an institution can be a real eye opener. That had never, you know, I had not thought about having to pay money back. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that had never entered my mind, actually. Uh, but what, what jolted me was that people were had expectations of me, mm-hmm. which I was feeling to, to uh, meet, mm-hmm. and I needed to clarify not only for them, or put it this way, I should clarify for myself, but also for them what my intentions were. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did uh, mm-hmm. spend time talking some with my accountability partners that mm-hmm. I've discussed with you earlier mm-hmm. to uh, decide you know, really what, what was going on in my life and whether those people who knew me when I was a, a, a boy, uh, had seen something uh, that uh, God had 
placed in me early in my life, even before I had made a profession of faith, even though I had been uh, baptized as an infant, as a as a uh, uh, as a part of the covenant. Um, so um, it was not difficult. Uh, but I did take the time to think it through and kind mm-hmm. of pray it through and talk with people whom I trusted mm-hmm. and um, did make a decision before the end of that school year. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately, they gave me enough time for that. <laughs> and I don't regret that decision at all. And I really think that... Um, when my advisor was raising that question with me at Bethel, uh, this was an instrument of God helping me to clarify, begin to help me to see the need to clarify if there is or was a call uh, on my life. It, we, we have to be sensitive to the fact that, you know, young people in school and in college just those early years of adulthood, you're still trying to figure out who you are, your place in the world, your contribution to the world and to the community that you live in or may live in. Um, Gosh, even physically, you're still growing. There's still a lot going on in your late teens and early 20s. It's a big ask. And even uh, during my uh, college years, um, even at the time I graduated from, uh, from Bethel, um, I was clear that um, I felt a call to ministry, but I wasn't sure what kind, because hmm. I kn- knew that in my denomination, Cumberland Presbyterian Church in America, there were not any full-time pastors in my denomination. Um, I was hesitating a moment. I was thinking there might have been one but I don't think there were any at the time. Um, so I knew that what I had seen uh, was was not a good prospect in terms of <laughs> livelihood, and so I wasn't sure what to do. You know, I had an interest in missions. Mm-hmm. I had an interest in what was called then foreign missions. Mm-hmm. Um, while at Bethel College, uh, Nancy Mauser, Bean. Well, Nancy Mauser Michael Bean. She was Nancy Mauser at the time. Nancy, if you're hearing this, excuse me. Um, and I were um, um, sent by students at Bethel to serve 10 weeks in Columbia, South America as su- what we called summer missionaries. Uh <laughs> And a part of that for me was I was trying and hoping to test out if God was calling me to serve outside the United States. Mm-hmm. Some of my accountability partners early in my teenage years, uh, two of them were missionaries in um, New Guinea, of all places. Okay. And so we all had that little fire in us do we want is God calling us to serve outside the United States so I went to South America um, and had a wonderful opportunity to encounter people like 
John Lovelace and, and uh, Joyce and um, uh, Bill Wood and Catherine, the boys, the Wallaces, boys and um, was it Boyce and his wife? I've forgotten Mrs. Wallace's name. Um, and uh, 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 Beth. Beth, yes. Beth. If you didn't ask me, yes. I could have rattled it off, but okay. it took me a minute. Boyce and Beth Wallace. Boyce and Beth Wallace. Um, had a wonderful experience there and uh, came to love and appreciate John and Joyce and um, um, uh, Bill and Catherine, Beth and uh, Boyce. Um, appreciated those weeks to the maximum. Um, so I, I was interested in inquiring of God, is this what you're calling me to do? Hmm. And um, um, decided then, uh, at, when I graduated from college, of course, to go into seminary directly. And um, so when I graduated from college, I didn't know what ministry for me professionally was going to look like. Mm. Came into seminary, and for those three years, I began to serve um, uh, part-time some small congregations in East Tennessee, would drive from Memphis to Athens, Tennessee. You know that drive, mm -hmm. don't you? I do. Every weekend, uh, back and forth for three years. Mm. Um, and, um, of course, a part of reason I didn't I hate that so much that was home for me. That area was home for me. I saw my parents and my siblings, but also saw my girlfriend. <laughs> uh, Pat Patricia lived uh, near that place. Um, and even though she was in college, um, some of that period, we could, um, um, you know, plan to have several moments when we would uh, meet each other on, on weekends so she would come home often that way. So it wasn't wasn't hard for me. But I got a taste of the uh, work of pastoral ministry and felt that I could be comfortable with that. Mm. Um, minus the drive. Minus the drive. <laughs> and um, Reverend Tinsley, pastor in Cleveland, Tennessee, my mentor, was also serving as general secretary for the denomination um, at the time and said to me at that point uh, during those years in seminary, I think you have some administrative skills mm -hmm. and I can't do this job many more years, so be thinking about the possibility of succeeding uh, me in this job at some point. Well, of course, I did not. Joel Rice succeeded Reverend Tinsley <laughs> and served for about five years. Mm -hmm. Then I succeeded Joel Rice. But um, um, So really, just a few years out of seminary, you were the general secretary, stated clerk-type role. Yeah, I graduated from seminary in 1970. Um, in 1973... Um, I was employed um, by the denomination as an executive secretary of the Board of Publication and Christian Education. Okay. 
and we had our, our two denominations, CPCA and CPC, had uh, a relationship with boards and agencies at that time. Mm-hmm. And the, the Board of Christian Education and the Board of Publication and Christian Education had formed what we called at that time the Federated Board of Christian Education. And um, uh, through a lot of um, influence and sacrifice and money uh, uh, engineered by Harold Davis, uh, I was employed in 1973 to become staff to the Federated Board of Christian Education, joining Harold Davis, Jim McGuire, Cornelia Swain. Um, oh my goodness, the lady that lived in um, Jefferson City, Tennessee, Miss Malcolm, um, in 1973, and then later, of course, Frank Ward and uh, um, Claudette Pickle mm. uh, joined the staff. What um, was the, what was your responsibility in that role? Well, um, I was to be a catalyst for helping the CPCA think about how to do Christian education to organize itself so that it could do that Christian education uh, and to inspire Um, young people to think about um, how they might live out their Christian faith uh, in in congregational settings. Okay. Um, That was for the CPCA. As a part of the Federated Board, we had joint responsibility for the administration of Christian education in both denominations. basically uh, doing what I've just described in the CPCA. How long did you do that? How long were you in that role? Well, from 1976 for, I don't remember, maybe six years, and the... um, the uh, position of executive secretary, general secretary, opened up, and my denomination asked me to um, assume responsibility for both of those. So the title became general secretary slash stated clerk, <laughs> in which uh, I served as the central executive officer for the denomination, mm-hmm. but also maintained a focus on Christian education, mm-hmm. missions and evangelism, and stewardship. Uh, I am chuckling because both denominations, we have a tendency to ask our representatives to wear many hats, yes. Yes. <laughs> participate in many roles. <laughs> well, in, in my case, um, I see it as a grace that the church asked me to do that because the church was saying to me, 
we want to give you opportunities mm-hmm. to serve in our denomination. We will, we will break down some doors. We will make it so enticing that you will not be able to say no. Mm-hmm. And to me, a part of um, this whole experience is that my denomination and the CPC as well have been partners in enabling me to serve as a Cumberland Presbyterian minister in a variety of ways. Mm-hmm. As you might expect, um, you know, you, there are offers that come your way from peers, from other denominations. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't recall one time when I ever took one of those offers seriously mm-hmm. because I knew that my denomination had made a heavy commitment and investment in me and uh, how could I turn my back on a group of people who had invested so much love, so much opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, as a baseball player once said, Lou Gehrig, I find myself to be the luckiest man on the face of the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't say that, but you know what I mean. Yeah, we were talking off mic before we got started of the, the act of service to a church that has given, given us so much local level on up just those affirmations and encouragement that there's no way, at least in my mind, from, from my journey of being able to repay or reciprocate the same amount of response to the many, many people and groups of people that have uh, opened their homes, opened their ministries, their lives, uh, for me to be a part of it. And I, mm-hmm. I feel, I believe even more so than feeling that the role that I have is just, uh, uh, hopefully a, an act of gratitude for what has been given to me in the past. Last Sunday, um, we're in, in the period of Thanksgiving now. So last Sunday, my sermon at text at Mount Tabor uh, was on the 116th Psalm, verse 12, in the King James, what shall I render unto the Lord for all God's benefits mm. to me? And in the NRSV, uh, using your words, how can I repay the Lord for all God has done for me? Mm. Um, and the answer, obviously, is there is no way one can make a repayment. You know, back in the day when I was growing up, uh, if someone did you a favor, if you didn't have uh, whatever you needed to give them to take care of the favor, you say, well, one day I'll pay you back. (laughs) Well, as I think about um, God's love for me, uh, to me, the Cumberland Presbyterian Church, her love for me, to me, 
uh, I can't pay back. Mm. There's no way I can pay it back. Yeah. All I can do is serve as long as I can, as faithfully as I can. And uh, in that way, it would be my way of saying thank you. Mm. And that's kind of where I am in my life at this point. You know, I'm, I'm not as young as you. I don't have as many years in front of me as I have behind me. Um, uh, so I, I don't have that many more years of service to give. But even in retirement, official retirement, um, I'm happy to be able to serve uh, in a small way a, a, a congregation as a way of, um, it's not repaying a debt, but it's a way of, of showing gratitude yeah. for, for yeah. all of God's grace and mercy. The church has loved on me. What other way can I respond but sharing the love that I have received from named people to, to those that I don't even know, but they've helped me along the way. Right. And Absolutely. I don't think I have to be in a career or vocation to give love. Well, even to strangers. Yes. yes. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Uh, maybe this is an uh, opportunity for me to go ahead and say a word about uh, people who have touched my life. I've sort of mentioned that already. Yeah. Uh, this may take a while because I've got a lot of <laughs> people to thank. Well, you're making my role as a host even easier. Well, Just uh, go on. Carry on, sir. <laughs> yeah, people have made a positive impact on my journey of faith. Um, very quickly, my parents and siblings, my grandparents— my wife, Patricia, and her family, my home church, uh, Reverend Tinsley and Mrs. Annie Tinsley, Reverend Joel Rice, Reverend Billy Belmont, my, uh, um, uh, uh, I want to call them co-conspirators, but we were students <laughs> together at Bethel uh, College and Memphis Seminary, uh, best, best friends in those days. Joel performed our wedding ceremony. Mm -hmm. Billy was my uh, best man. Think about professors at the college, uh, Hubert Morrow and Elsie Waddle. Um, Elsie um, uh, would make you mad in class, but he opened up windows of understanding that I needed at that time. I, I really love the man <laughs> and the memory of Elsie Waddle. All my professors at MTS and Vanderbilt Divinity School, I mentioned Harold Davis, Frank Ward, Claudette Hamby, Cornelius Wayne, folk in every congregation I've served, faculty at MTS. Uh, all of this is to say that the Cumberland Presbyterian Church has nurtured and is nurturing me over the years. Now, that's sort of an outline form. Let me try to put it into perspective. I began attending a Cumberland Presbyterian uh, Church at birth, I'm a fourth-generation CP. My mother was a third-generation CP. My father became CP after marrying my mother. I'm a Cumberland Presbyterian because it's in my blood. Hmm. Uh, John Calvin would probably say it's in my spirit. <laughs> Our Reformed theology would likely call it providence. Samuel McAdoo, Finus Ewing, and Samuel King would likely say, I'm a Cumberland Presbyterian because my family chose it for me. 
So I've always been in the church. I've known nothing but the church. Mm. I was baptized as an infant, began attending church school and worship before I can remember. Uh, as, as I think back to where or to when I became conscious that I was a part of the church, there are some images that stick out in my mind. My church school teachers, uh, people like people we would call Miss Pauline, mm. were friendly. The stories I heard were fantastic. <laughs> Worship was moving. Love was unconditional. People loved me. Faith fed me. Worship sustained me. And through all of it, uh, somehow God met me. I remember fondly some of the key people in my nurture, as I've mentioned them. B.C. and Mary Wood, my parents, active in the life of the church, brought up all seven of their children. Yes, I'm the middle of seven children. Wow. Five of us are still living, but they brought us all up in the church to love God and the church and to participate in the church's life and miss a witness. We were members of Green's Chapel, Cumberland Presbyterian Church in Charleston, Tennessee, mm -hmm. a community of about uh, 750 people, mm -hmm. a congregation that uh, uh, had back in those days maybe 75 members. On the first Sunday, every person in the community, every African-American family in the community would go to the Baptist church. On the second Sunday, we would go to the Method AME Zion church. On the third Sunday, uh, whoever would make the announcement first, uh, we would go to that church, and on the fourth Sunday, we'd all go to the CP church. <laughs> so every fourth Sunday, everybody in the community came to Green's Chapel, my home church. Mm. Uh, each of my siblings, every member of Green's Chapel had a role in shaping my life. As a child, I remember attending uh, church school and worship, participated, believe it or not, in the choir <laughs> and youth group and listen to, quote, the adults, unquote, when they had their business meetings and endless discussions about the church. I remember fondly my cousin Jim and I went to a meeting of the church session one night, and they asked us to count the money that from the offering the previous day. We were on the floor up near the pulpit, and after we had counted, counted, after we had counted the money, we then, as little kids, started throwing the dollar bills up in the in the air, and, and one of the uh, older men said to us, uh, "Basically, stop doing that. We know you're having fun, but as he put it, that's God's money. Don't play with it like that." Anyway, that was uh, I still remember that. I publicly acknowledged my faith in Christ. At the age of 12, mm -hmm. I've mentioned that already. As I grew into adolescence and beyond, I learned more about what it means to be a Cumberland Presbyterian. I learned to like the theology. Uh, St. Anselm of Canterbury once said that theology is faith-seeking understanding, and that's what my adult life has been about, <laughs> trying to make sense out of what I said was my faith. For me, being a Cumberland Presbyterian came first by baptism. Later, I learned more about why I am a Cumberland Presbyterian 
and I liked what I learned. Mm. Uh, I found my spiritual home in the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. As I said, Green's Chapel at the time I was there had about 75 members, uh, was named after one of its members, a man everybody in the community, everybody affectionately called Uncle Luke Green. Uncle Luke was a lay, in those days they called them ruling elder. <laughs> he and my grandfather, Papa Condon Golston, another lay elder, were the oldest and most uh, seasoned leaders of the church when I was a child. Both of them made an impression on me because of their loyalty to the church, the church family, and to God. So when either of them spoke, I listened. Mm. Uh, Curtis Wood, um, um, he and my dad were second cousins, so distant cousin. Curtis Wood and his wife, Miss Pauline Wood, contributed significantly to my nurture. Uh, they took special interest in me, treated me as one of their children. Uh, Miss Pauline was my church school teacher uh, for a number of uh, years, um, and she was also a good friend and advisor. I don't remember many specifics of what she taught me, but I remember her as the best uh, church school teacher I ever had. Why? because she loved me and wanted only the best for me. When I was graduating from uh, uh, High Point Elementary School, eighth grade, for our um, final graduate, graduation program, um, we all had to dress up. So Miss Pauline drove me to Cleveland and purchased for me a new suit. Mm. It cost four dollars. <laughs> a new suit. This was like uh, 1958, maybe something like that. Four dollars. My goodness. Uh, but uh, I looked good that day <laughs> uh, because uh, not because of what I was wearing, but because my uh, uh, Miss Pauline, who loved me so much that she would take me uh, to buy a suit, had purchased it for me. Wow. She made a profound mark on my life, and to this day, um, I still um, uh, better pause. Dr. Wood, you were talking about Miss Pauline. Yes. Uh, uh, Miss Pauline made a profound mark on my life, and I was uh, saying to this day, I still want to please her, though she's uh, been dead 25 years mm -hmm. or more. Um, there are a lot of people, and I think I've mentioned a lot of these already, uh, Reverend Tinsley and um, um, Mrs. Annie Tinsley, when we were here um in seminary, Joel Rice and I um, were invited by the Tinsleys to uh, have a dinner at their house on uh, April 4th, 1968. That happened to be the day that uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was shot and killed. Uh, we were having dinner, we were going to have dinner 
we were already at the house and um, uh, about ready to sit down to eat. We were going to leave that meeting and go to the um, uh, Mason Temple that night for the meeting and heard as we were sit getting uh, our seats at the table around 6 o'clock that evening uh, that Dr. King had been shot. Um, so the Tensleys were influential not only in my early development, but uh, while I was here as a seminary as well. Dr. Wood, yes. can, can we pause here for a sure. moment? And, sure. and um, if you're willing to kind of live in that moment, um, seminary student here in Memphis, and did you get the news over the radio? By yes. Do, uh, Mrs. Uh, um, Tensley had her radio on as she was uh, finalizing the, the meal and came in and told us, we thought she was about to say, come to the table. Mm. And she told us that uh, she had just heard that Dr. King had been shot. Um, and um, so that was the way we heard, I heard the news for the first time that mm. he had been shot. And later, of course, she, we kept the radio on. We learned that uh, he died. Mm. Right. That was... Um was and still is a tough time in the city, yes, in the nation, right, in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It um, um, was one of those moments that um, you know you can easily go, go back, and I can easily go back and remember where I was when I heard the news. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it was that significant to me. I like asking uh, the guests that I have on here where you see God in your life today. And um, I like to emphasize the present tense because we've spent a good amount of time on the past. And a lot of times when we are sharing our faith and talking about our faith, we are referencing past experiences. But as we encounter people in the world, people are looking for solace, grace, forgiveness, comfort, peace, hope, love presently. So I think it's good for us to talk about our faith in the present tense mm. and not always live in the past tense. So, Dr. Wood, where do you see God working in your life now? Well, let me start by saying, uh, uh, my, in my faith journey, I've had peaks and valleys. I've mm -hmm. had moments of wonderful insight and great doubt. Mm -hmm. um, and that has not subsided. <laughs> As a matter of fact, that continues to this very day. There are moments of high intensity, and there are moments of uh, great doubt and fear mm -hmm. about our future as a world, mm -hmm. about our city, mm -hmm. about our denominations. Uh, you know, there's right. there's all of that. Yeah, and we, um, we've talked a bit, a bit about the affirmations yes. from the church. Yes. Because it's, it's the kind and the right thing to do, and that's right. where we should live. But yes, you, I, members of the community of faith, it isn't always affirmation. 
from our peers, from fellow Christians, from people that we've served. Um, I'm not asking you to tell tales, but to ignore hardships is to ignore living. Absolutely. And, well, and in the midst of all of this, uh, I don't want to sound too Presbyterian at this point, (laughs) but I do believe in the sovereignty of God. Mm Mm-hmm. And I, you know, you can push that too far mm-hmm. and become too much of a Calvinist, if you will, and just assume that no matter what happens, God is going to rule and overrule and change things and all of that. But I think we human beings play a significant role um, and sometimes leave God with little to work with uh, <laughs> in terms of we can do so much damage I think about the environment, uh, the creation, God's wonderful creation. Uh, we, we've messed up God's world in a very significant way. And uh, we, I, I do believe that God is uh, ever changing God's creation. And in the final analysis, it all will be... Uh, uh, conformed once again to the image of God and will be good again. I, mm-hmm. I, I believe in conversion. I believe in salvation, that there will be a new beginning. But so I, while I want to say that uh, my faith is fairly strong today, I have to tell you uh, I can be swayed by the challenges we face mm-hmm. in society and in the church. But my faith in Christ is uh, the reason I have hope. Um, I have followed a life pattern that attempts to follow what I believe to be God's purpose in my life. Every time I make a major decision, um, I'm always uh, trying to inquire the mind of God. And, you know, that may sound a little too Presbyterian as well (laughs) because— um, you know, it's, it's not that God wants us so much to, to uh, know God's mind as it is for us to be clear in our own minds what we are about and try to follow his leadership and God's leadership and guidance uh, every day of our lives. But anyway, every time I make a major decision, I try to ascertain God's will and purpose for my life at the moment. Uh, that doesn't happen um, as well as it should, as it ought to, but uh, it does happen on occasions. But the thing that keeps pulling me back when I veer off, I believe, is that the love of God is so compelling that it's like a magnet. It kind of pulls me back mm. and draws me in once again. And for me... Um, that's my only salvation. Uh, I can easily veer off and go the wrong way. I do it all the time. Um, I am a person who makes mistakes in abundance. <laughs> um, but uh, through the grace of God and the love of God, um, my life experience has been that God, like a magnet, has love that pulls me and uh, 
brings me out of bad situations and gives gives me hope again. Mm. So we live in a difficult period in history. Uh, I worry about what's going on in Gaza, in Ukraine, in Memphis, in the Cumberland Presbyterian churches. And I have to think that uh, the answer to the problem is not so much in my hand, in our hands. Uh, Somehow God is overseeing everything, sees what's going on, and God is good at taking evil (laughs) and, and, and making some good come out of it. So that's what's going on in my life now. Um, God's got uh, a tough dude to work with in me. Um, And my only salvation is that uh, uh, beyond me, beyond us, beyond our churches, beyond the world, God is at work reconciling the world unto God's self. And I have to believe that. Mm. And in my better days, I want to be a participant with God in that reconciliation work. Mm. That may sound a little arrogant. You know, who are we to work with God <laughs> to do what God's doing? Yeah. But part of, I think that's a part of our calling anyway. Dr. Wood, how do you how do you not be overcome with discouragement in life, in the world, in the two churches, in the community? I mean, it's really easy to to do, uh, regardless of age, gender, background, to be able to look around, to read, to observe. And in our worst cases, to even participate in. How do you not let discouragement just overwhelm you and go, and it's, it's not worth it, it being church, world, relationship? I mean, fill, fill in the blank. I'm not sure I have an answer for that one. And certainly for me, I don't have uh, anything that is uh, dramatic. Um, I am a person of prayer. I do pray a lot. Mm -hmm. I pray for um, specific situations, uh, those that we've mentioned. I pray for each of them regularly, including uh, CPCA, um, you know, uh, in terms of um, my denomination for a long time, I felt that my period of service was behind me in terms of the national church. And so every time um, somebody would say, well, there's this opening, would you like uh, us to put your name in? I would say no. But decided just before General Assembly met uh, this past year in 2023, um, when someone raised that question with me, I decided that maybe it's time to uh, get back in in the game Mm -hmm. and do the little I can do mm-hmm. and not stand outside and 
worry and be a critic and whatever <laughs> else, but in, to keep praying mm-hmm. and to do what my hands can do, but ultimately to believe Presbyterian again in the sovereignty of God <laughs> that despite evil, um, God is good, God is love, and um, in the final analysis, that's going to win. Right. So that's my hope, that's my mm-hmm. belief. And so I may be down, uh, downcast for a couple of hours, and then my mind goes back to uh, that basic theology, and then I say, well, uh, let me get out of this place and go somewhere else and uh, lighten up a little bit. And so I make it through the day. (laughs) Well, let me push back a little bit. I know that you've said no. I've heard you say no um, in our friendship over the years. But I was thinking before we had this conversation, you shepherded, walked with a couple different judicatories plus a congregation, Mount Tabor, through the COVID pandemic, you were the moderator of New Hopewell Presbytery and had to navigate, should we meet? How will we meet? When all those different logistics and for Tennessee Synod, you were the moderator as well. And and of course, pastoring the Mount Tabor Cumberland Presbyterian Church in America. You were in a lot of hats, uh, 2019, 2020, up up to 2023. So you have said no. You've also said yes, though, in those roles. And I've been very grateful um, to be able to watch watch you kind of help walk walk those judicatories, walk that congregation through some very very tough times, death, sickness. Um, being pulled apart by distance, uh, politics, the, the list goes on and on and on. Right. Well, that's kind of you to say, and I can't say any more about that except to say that it, it might have been um, um, by divine intervention that we survived <laughs> uh, all of that. We have come out on the other side, I believe, a little stronger than we were when we went into uh, COVID, that COVID period, mm-hmm. and and shortly thereafter. Um, as I mentioned at the Senate meeting this time, I feel that um, my time as a leader in those two capacities are now over. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I was happy to participate then, but as an old person now, I really see my role as uh, uh, an enabler of you younger guys and ladies uh, who have much more energy and intelligence and insight and uh, ability to lead uh, than I, I presently have, you know, with the body getting weaker and maybe the mind too. <laughs> I, uh, uh, but but uh, during those years, um, I sort of felt the call to try to serve and mm-hmm. did the best I could, yeah. 
Let's talk for a moment. Uh, you, in terms of service, you served, and I know we're jumping around chronologically, but you served as a professor and dean at uh, Memphis Theological Seminary. Did you ever see yourself doing the full swing? You were a previous student, and then fast forward a handful of years? Not really. Uh, it, it, it was a part of the wonders of God's grace and, and mercy that, uh, that happened. Um, I have uh, always loved Memphis Theological Seminary. The professors there were, when I was a student, uh, were some of my uh, most admired people. Uh, Bill Ingram, Colvin Baird, John Gardner, um, uh, Virgil Todd, you know, people like that. Um, I looked up to in those years, and they were, um, they were especially kind to me. Could be because I was a minority CPCA student, and they wanted, they may have wanted to make sure that uh, they took good care of me and prepared me for whatever uh, God would open up mm -hmm. later for me to do. So I've always loved uh, Memphis Seminary. Served on the board of trustees a couple of years after I graduated, and then in. Um, 1998 was called. Uh, David Hester was the president at the time and wondered if I would be willing to come and succeed uh, Clinton Buck as director of the uh, Doctor of Ministry program. So that was, and I said yes. So I, I went there, left the post at the um, General Assembly office in, uh, in Huntsville at the time. And so it evolved. Uh, D-Man director taught some courses in Christian ministry, uh, associate dean, um, uh, later um, uh, dean and professor, and retired in 2017. Mm -hmm. I spent 19 and a half years at uh, Memphis Seminary. Who would have thought that, that <laughs> I could, could have been there that long? Uh, it's amazing um, how time flew. But those were good years. Mm -hmm. I, I I'm very happy that it worked out that I could go there. Okay, now that you're no longer teaching, and without mentioning any names, yeah. when you look out across the classroom and you see all these uh, promising and upcoming uh, people preparing for ministry, for many denominations, for several, um, what goes through your mind? Are, are you Were you excited? Were you... Were there moments where you just shook your head and wondered about students like myself? <laughs> what, you know, what, what goes through your mind when you look out in, in that yeah, classroom? Yeah. Well, I wonder what uh, professors thought when they looked at us as students, mm -hmm. when I was there as a student. Mm -hmm. um, Bob... Uh, uh, Watkins said recently, um, talking about the graduating class at Bethel in 1963, said, um, when you look back and see what's happened in the, the lives and ministries, uh, we did pretty good. Mm -hmm. Well, when I think about some of the students, uh, uh, and I'm not thinking about you. I think about wonderful students like Melissa Malinowski, mm -hmm. 
you know, I always ask myself the question, um, would I want that student, that student to serve as pastor of my family? Mm. At the time, many of them came through MTS. I would have said no. Mm. But now that I look back on several graduates, uh, Memphis Theological Seminary and some of the students that uh, were in the classroom, that classes that I taught, um, they're, they're outstanding Christian leaders. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about uh, going from as far uh, as non-denominational folk to uh, CPs. Yeah. Um, you know, people like yourself have uh, emerged as um, significant leaders. Um, you know, you're changing the landscape of how Cumberland Presbyterians think about evangelism mm. and how they engage in the work of evangelism. Um, I don't know if MTS taught you any of this, mm. but in everything that you studied while you were at MTS, my hunch is you were greatly influenced to become the person that you have become. So I I don't think so much about um, who they were at the time, who the (laughs) students were at the time. But as you you look back over 20 years of working with students, kind of proud of... uh, Mm. Of who students are. When you think about the city of Memphis, almost every significant, especially every significant African American pastor leader graduated from MTS. Mm-hmm. You, you name one, MTS. Name another one, MTS graduate. Mm-hmm. Same is true, I think, for Cumberland Presbyterians. Mm -hmm. The significant leaders, those who have emerged to help change the world, change the church, if it it weren't PAWS, it's MTS. You know, PAWS being a part of MTS. Uh, So I think it's an unfair question to ask. uh, (laughs) What do you think about those students back then? Is what do you what do you think about those graduates who are serving now? Are you proud or are you not? And uh, obviously, well, I was, uh, we're proud. Yeah, I was wondering because the person that I was at Memphis Theological Seminary, or Bethel College, high school, so forth and so on, I, I'm not the same. Right. Um, right. Even in those years of preparation, by the time you get to graduate school, uh, you grow, you change. Life uh, has a way of doing that. Your studies beyond school have a way of doing that. And um, I know um, our friendship has grown. Uh, when I first met you, was was at seminary. You were my professor. And... Uh, to be able to connect in a different way and have a, a friendship, a relationship in a different way, especially early on several years ago, I couldn't help but think 
oh, I hope Dr. Wood doesn't remember me as the 21 and two, three-year-old that I was then. Uh, not that I was a bad student no, or disruptive no, or anything like that. It was just, I could look back, I can look back and go, okay, I, I'm not, I'm not in the same place. Right. Absolutely. In my faith, in my service, in my relationships, you know, I'm a right. different person. That's why I was asking is yeah, yeah. I sometimes more so probably for the college professors than the seminary professors. I was like, oh, no, I hope they don't hold my conduct or my paperwork yeah. against me because yeah. I didn't always take things yeah. as seriously yeah. as I probably should have had. You, you've mentioned the word relationships more than often, more than once. Uh, you've mentioned it often in uh, this conversation. Um I remember that the um, development people at the seminary, when we would have cabinet meetings, would always talk about the need, and board meetings, always talk about the need, if you're going to raise money, you have to focus on relationships. Mm -hmm. You have to focus on becoming friends with potential donors. Um, and that says a lot, I think, about who we are as Christians as well. I think we can take that analogy and put it within how we win people to Christ, mm. how we how we grow our churches. Um, relationships are not easy to develop. Mm. Uh, friendships are not easy to develop. Um, become knowledge, becoming knowledgeable of other people is one thing, but developing. A relationship and a friendship is a different thing. Mm. And maybe in the church we have failed to focus enough on developing strong mm. relationships, not just with the people in our congregations, but with people out in the world. Mm. The, the one, the, if I were to say I'm proud of something in the Cumberland Presbyterian Church, I would say there are ministries where people have focused on relationships. I think about Lisa Anderson and the Room in the Inn program that she oversees and a lot of congregations in Memphis now participate in, of providing shelter, overnight shelter for families, especially during this the, the cold seasons right. of the year rather than they are being on the streets. So they develop relationships with these women and their children, and sometimes fathers or husbands are there as well. But they develop relationships. Mm. They do more. She's doing more than giving them a place to sleep. Mm. She knows them by name. Mm. She's able to uh, discuss with them um, happenings in their lives because last week, this person said something that she was going to experience this week mm -hmm. so Lisa can bring it to their attention mm -hmm. uh, when they're in conversation. Uh, so, you know, that, that's one of the things. Um, Pete Gatke and his uh, wife, Pete has recently retired, is retiring from the seminary, but um, resigning, rather. Um, his Amana house mm -hmm. where... Uh, they build relationships with people on, on the streets. Right. He calls them by name. I remember one day I said, Pete, 
What do you call these people uh, who come to the place, Manor House, regularly? Are they your clients? No, they're guests. Hmm. That that stung. That that felt good <laughs> when when Pete said that. Um, they're our guests hmm. and relationships, and and uh, you're keen on relationships, so I wanted to pull your plug for a moment and say uh, <laughs> I agree with you 100%. And it takes time. And time can mean months and years for true relationship to, to develop. I have to be able to know that I can trust Dr. Wood. Yes. You have to be able to know if you can trust me and sort through the layers of potential baggage or stereotypes previous encounters it it's time and effort yes. and um but it's worthwhile i agree, I agree. worthwhile yeah. and it's it's responding to the larger relationship yeah. that god has with us through jesus christ and in a way it shouldn't become overwhelming for us because that's a part of our vocation that's a part of who well, we are mm-hmm. that's a part of what we're called to be and do uh, so if we're in ministry, we're called to be in relationship building. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's the goal. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's not a hap- it's not something that happens by an accident. <laughs> that's what we do. That's yeah. who we are. But the challenge for those who have it as a vocation is that the relationship doesn't become your vocation, yeah. and that's a that's a dance that's hard especially out in the community who may not be faith connected, um, may not attend church. They may see true sincerity as a marketing or recruitment mechanism to attend the church that you're a part of. It's hard. It's hard. But at the same time, we're in a place in, in our history, I think humans have always been this way, where we are absent of those good, deep, and meaningful relationships. We're hungry for them. Well, of course, Jesus had 12 disciples who grew in relationship to him three years and wasn't 100% successful <laughs> with yeah. Judas uh, yeah. betra- uh, and, and even Peter betraying him. Yeah. Um, but after three years... Folk were ready to join. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like um, uh, a part of our evangelism responsibility is to build relationships so that eventually people will want to ask, what must I do mm-hmm. to be saved? What must mm-hmm. I do to be a part of the body of Christ? What mm-hmm. must I do um, um, so I can be in this relationship with God? Uh, and like you say, it doesn't happen after two or three visits. It may take three years or five years or ten years. Right. Our goal is not to uh, so much win people as it is to relate to people. And in God's own time, mm-hmm. uh, God, the Holy Spirit, will tell us when, when it's right. right. And yeah. that person will make his or her own decision. I think we are at our best when we are inviters because ultimately all we can do is invite someone 
in a relationship with Jesus Christ. I, I can't do that for them. Yeah. I can walk alongside them, but I'm ultimately just an inviter. Then I can speak from firsthand experience and some knowledge that I've gained through school and life, but right. Right. I, it, at best, we can only invite others to know God more deeply. I'm a, one of my friends, based on the role I played at the seminary, is a Michael Greenstein, mm-hmm. uh, Temple Israel here in, um, in Memphis. Um, Rabbi Greenstein will likely never become Christian. Um, he believes in Jesus. We've talked about it. He, he believed Jesus was a fantastic Jew. Um, wonderful prophet, but not the the promised Messiah. So, um, you know, my relationship with Micah is not so much to win him to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but to share the love of God that exudes through me mm-hmm. and where it goes or how he takes it and uses it is not my business anyway. Um, so uh, sometimes um, in building relationships, it's not to the end of a decision to be like you, but rather to um, let the love of God mm-hmm. come through you. Mm-hmm. And I don't want people to be like me. <laughs> well, the world would be better if there were more T.J. Malinowski. No, no, I, I don't want a bunch of T.J.'s running around. <laughs> well, Dr. Wood, we've alluded to this next question, um, but you may want to spend more time with uh, the church. What do you think the church is doing well, and where do you think some there are some areas for improvement? And you can answer that specifically. Church can mean church universal. Church can mean Cumberland Presbyterian sister churches. Or you can just focus on one or the other. Yeah, um, I've thought about that a little bit. I think... Uh, um, for me, the, the, in this era anyway, the positive development in the church, I think, uh, at least in, in America and in the Cumberland Presbyterian Church, is a return to the study, the reading and the study of the Bible. We are a biblical people and we're in a way as CPs, we're returning to our roots of trying to dig into and understand Scripture. Mm. To me, that's a positive. That's a wonderful development that we're, we're engaged in now. So I, I applaud that. Um, my concern has to do with the need for us to be careful in how we read the Bible. I have mentioned to you before that sometimes I worry about uh, exegetical theories that people use when they read, study, interpret the word. 
you know, the, the idea always is that when we read the Bible, we are going to interpret it. Mm-hmm. Uh, reading is interpreting. And interpreting always has a human element attached to it. And so I have to always be concerned about weeding out the uh, human impediment that gets in the way of my properly understanding the scriptures that I'm reading. Mm. And I think um, in the church in America, in the Cumberland Presbyterian Church, in the Cumberland Presbyterian Church in America, uh, I applaud a return to the Bible. I'm glad this day has come. There was a time when we kind of put the Bible aside, but we've picked it up again. We're reading it again. I like that. I'm glad we're doing it. Um, I want us to um, be faithful interpreters. Hmm. I I, I used to say to students that every time we uh, pick up the Bible and read something like John 3.16, the way we read it, the way I read it, especially if I read it out loud, I'm offering an interpretation hmm. to what's in the text. As long as the scriptures remain in that book hmm. without human involvement and interference, <laughs> everything's great. Hmm. But as soon as I flip to it and begin to read it and interpret it, um, the potential for human error is enhanced, and I think that's a part of a part of what worries me right now about mm-hmm. the struggles going on in major denominations: mm-hmm. Presbyterian Church USA, Southern Baptist denomination, United Methodists, or whatever they're called now. Uh, with the breakup of that denomination in the Cumberland Presbyterian Church, in the Cumberland Presbyterian Church in America, um, our reading of the Bible can cause us to build walls rather than bridges. Mm -hmm. And what worries me right now is we're building, we're letting our interpretations build bridges and sometimes our interpretations aren't uh, exegetically correct. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to add that as we approach the scriptures for study, to ask before we study what is drawing me to the text. What am I seeking? Am I seeking grace? Am I seeking understanding? Am I seeking affirmation? But begin to ask questions before you even begin reading. What frame of mind am I in before? Am I angry? Am I looking for something to equip me against my enemy? Am I looking for solace? And ask that question. What what is it that, um, what is it that you're bringing to the text? Maybe even unconsciously. Right. And that and I think that question can help. Help. Um, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. And those are not um, uh, 
bad questions to ask. Um, the issue is, let's just be honest, if I'm going to the scriptures so that I can find um, help in my time of need, I need to be frank. Frankly, um, uh, I, I need to be careful that I am uh, asking that and then look for it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. If, if, uh, if I go to the scriptures just to have opportunity to have a text and sermon for Sunday, that's different. Mm-hmm. And so I'll be honest with it. But as you put it, if it's um, intention intentionally designed to um, um, build a wall, I need to be honest about that too. Yeah. I think it, to swing it back around to kind of where we began, approaching the scriptures with the awe and wonder and gratitude. Yes. Um, there's amazing work in there and revelations that if I'm looking in the text with a furled brow, metaphorically and in reality, I'm going to find some things in there. Uh, the scriptures in both the Old and New Testament that may not be in there when my brow is unfurrowed. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Carl Bart, I think it was, who said, uh, when you study the Bible, uh, have a Bible in one hand and uh, a good daily newspaper in the other. You know, that goes way back to when newspapers were around. <laughs> but uh, have a Bible in one hand and a good um, um, modern day um, program that helps you know what the news is that's going on or all around you and let each speak to the other. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I've always felt that we need um, two or three commentaries <laughs> <laughs> nearby when I open the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that um, my understanding can be expanded. Mm. Yeah. Since we're talking about reading, Dr. Wood, what are you reading right now? What do you recommend? Well, I'm not reading these right now, but uh, I do have a, because you uh, told me you're, you might ask that question, I've got a couple of three things that I would uh, recommend. Uh, assuming that some pastors um, are going to hear this podcast, and uh, may be interested in um, uh, church administration, there is a book that um, I highly recommend. It's probably one of the better uh, one or two books on church administration that uh, I'm aware of. Uh, the, the title of it is Church Administration <laughs> by Robert Bacher, B-A-C-H-E-R, and Michael Cooper White. Michael Cooper White, um, an excellent uh, resource on, you know, when I was at the seminary, people would say the um, seminary has not prepared us well for church administration. So this is a book that I strongly urge pastors to read if they've not been reading it. There's another book that deals with the spirituality that I recommend. It's called Holy Conversations, Strategic Planning as a Spiritual Practice 
for Congregations, uh, written by Gil Rendell, R-E-N-D-L-E, and Alice Mann, M-A-N-N, Spiritual Practice for Congregations, having holy conversations very similar to what you and I have been having today, I hope. (laughs) (laughs) A third one I recommend, uh, this one has to do when arguments don't win the mind, uh, love can win the heart. Uh, So the title of the book is Apologetic of the Heart. And this one is written by John Bloom, B-L-O-O-M, Apologetic of the Heart. Again, the the issue is uh, with all the stuff going on in the world, uh, don't be overcome by that. Here are uh, wonderful examples of how uh, love prevails in the midst of uh, of hatred. Uh, love may win the heart. Hmm. Dr. Wood, thank you for giving me a couple hours of your time. Time has passed, hasn't it? It hasn't felt like it. Uh, it just happens to be a clock behind you that I could see. Okay. I really appreciate you, Sharon. I've gotten to know you over the years, and you know we we've spent some time traveling as well. Yes. And um, this has been a real treat because you typically pepper me with questions, and now <laughs> finally. I've been able to ask you, um, and um, well, I'm grateful. Thank you, uh, TJ, for this uh, opportunity. I had difficulty sleeping last night, and um, uh, if I don't get two and a half hours of steady sleep at night, I'm no good the next day. And I found myself tossing and turning about until about three o'clock in the morning. Then I discovered when I turned over. It was six o'clock, so I said to myself, I'm good for TJ now. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, things like that happen sometimes. On Saturday night, um, um, when I uh, retire for the evening before driving up to Jackson on uh, Sunday morning, um, I toss and turn a lot. Mm. um, And... um, um, so uh, this is, was very typical of my anxiety <laughs> that uh, I experience when I'm getting ready to go to Mount Tabor. Oh, my. I'm so sorry. See, I was so excited on the other end. You could even ask my wife. I was looking forward to having this conversation. And what would it, where would it go? What would it sound like? Um, so it was anticipation and not anxiety. Um, and, but thank you. Thank you for thank sharing your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cumberland Road. Check out the other guests who have also shared their faith journey. Dr. Wood mentioned some of the difficulties the world and the church is facing. When I went back to edit this podcast, it reminded me of a song by Roberta Flack called Trying Times. So to close, I will read, no, you don't want me to sing, a verse from her song, Trying Times. Trying times is what the world is talking about. You've got confusion 
all over the land. Mother against daughter, father against son. The whole thing is getting out of hand. But folks wouldn't have to suffer if there was more love for your brother. But these are trying times. A whole lot of things that is wrong is going down. And I don't understand it from my point of view. I remember somebody said, do unto others as you have them do unto you. And then folks wouldn't have to suffer if there was more love.